Well, I want us to look just for a short time this morning at this first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Some of you will be aware that the reason for me coming up this weekend was not to enjoy your company, sweet as that is, but it was because there was a wedding taking place down south of the Cletium. It's a wonderful thing to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. To take time in this world so filled with sorrow and sadness and shame, to have time to be touched by the sense of the goodness of God and the grace and the mercy of God in those good things that he provides for us and for one another. And I want us to take three main things away this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the way in which the holiness of Jesus in the joy that he shared with those who rejoiced. I then want to see his helpfulness in looking to their need and dealing with that according to the necessity of the hour. And then finally, I want us to consider the way in which he was honorable in everything that he did. First of all then, he was holy in joy. One writer, Frank Gabeline, said, a test of Christian devotion is the extent to which in happiness, as well as in sorrow, we think of Jesus. When we are in the midst of trial and tribulation, our thoughts are often rushed heavenward. We look to the Lord, we get on our knees and we pray and we call to the Lord and we say, help us out of this dreadful, dire situation. We're happy. So often, our thoughts are just about the enjoyments that we have, the benefits, the blessings, and you look at the world generally when it's going well, rarely thinks of praying, put it in a foxhole, put it in a difficult situation, and suddenly prayer becomes a very real need and a pressing responsibility. But in our joys, Jesus Christ should be present. And in the midst of our sweetest moments, he should be there. And certainly with regards to this lovely moment pictured for us, we see, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ affirming the institution of marriage. See what's going on today. And they're assaulting the institution of marriage. They are twisting the description of marriage. But here is Jesus affirming the God-given institution of marriage. Now, of course, that was done by the Lord God when in the first bringing together of Adam and Eve, you had that first institution ordained by God following creation. Following the six days on which God worked and then the seventh on which he rested. After all of that, you have this wonderful bringing together of Adam and Eve. 
And it's a wonderful picture of the way in which God is there at the heart of those sweetest and best of our relationships. And in our marriages, and in our homes, he should be at the heart. And he should be there not just on the opening day, but on every day as we go through life. And so we see here that in the very joy of that marriage in Cana of Galilee, the mother of Jesus and Jesus and his disciples were all called to the marriage. He honored that marriage with the first miracle of his ministry. It's a wonderful thing to think that. He could have performed that ministry before the king. He could have performed that miracle in some wonderful, spectacular way before the temple or in some other place. But there, in a wedding, he performed the first miracle of his ministry. And what a wonderful thing that is. God might have chosen many occasions on which that notable event could have taken place. But he chose a wedding. And how sensitive that should make us to the importance of marriage and the bond which is established at that time. If God blessed it with the first public miracle of his son, should we not deal with it carefully? respectfully and honorably in all that we say, do, and are. It was the first shining forth in a way, both in law and grace of the goodness and the mercy of God, because in that first bringing together of Adam and Eve, and in every subsequent Marriage, there is a picture of what the Lord does when he brings his people to himself. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who had sanctified and cleansed his church with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. And then he says this, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, he doesn't just leave it at the bare outward 
aspects of what goes on when man and woman are joined together in marriage, but the fact that it's always, when that occurs, rightly it's pointing to that bringing together of Christ and his bride. There's a gospel illustration being set before us. It's one of the reasons it should fill us with joy. Told there's joy in heaven. In the presence of the angels, when sinners repent or are gathered in. Why? Because the bride is being brought in. The shining forth of the goodness of God at such times. So there's Christ affirming marriage and dealing with it in a most honorable and holy joy. Secondly, he adorned the festivities with his presence. It is not a bad thing to be joyful. In fact, we're told in Scripture, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Sometimes there can be a misunderstanding of the effect of being a truly godly and religious individual where some seem to think it means that you go around with a permanent frown upon your face. Not a bit of it. Joy should mark our steps as believers, even in the midst of the most trying and difficult of times, because the Lord is with us, we are able to go through those things with a sense of joyful anticipation of all that the Lord will bring out of it, so that even as the fires are upon us, we think when he has purged us and purified us, we shall come forth as gold. Happy times, though, have many temptations associated with them. Perhaps even more than other times because of their tendency to make us forget our dependence and our need of the Lord. You think of the feast of Belshazzar. There was a man who could, because of the abundance of his wealth, feast whenever he wished to, even when. An enemy army was at the gates of his city. So confident was he of the preservation that that outward wall pro, uh, protected him with, that he felt he need not worry, he could have a party in the very face of those who were set against him. Of course, he was a fool, and he was challenging not only his enemies, but God. And in his unholy joy, he blasphemed the God of heaven. He misused and abused those things set aside for the honor of God and committed sacrilege. And he brought upon himself the curse of the God of heaven so that his joy was cut short by the appearance of a disembodied hand writing upon the plaster in words he could not understand. Many, many, tekelu parson, numbered, numbered, way divided. Oh, my friend, unholy joy can be a fearful thing. Can bring the judgment of Almighty God down upon us more swiftly than we dare imagine. 
that did for Belshazzar, those foolish ones that gathered with him to commit his same sins there in the palace. For that very night, what he thought could not happen, happened. And God brought judgment to him. But the Lord Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoice, just as we should. And did it in a way that was holy and blessed and a blessing to others. When the wicked rejoice, it's a dreadful thing. But when the godly rejoice, when those who love the Lord show that they are joyful in the Lord, it's the very strength of his people. And would that we would show that strength more often. Would that the joy of the Lord would break forth on our countenances from day to day with such natural sweetness that others would see in us Christ and the joy that he brings to our lives. Well, the Lord Jesus, there in that lovely gathering in Cana of Galilee, he adorned it with his presence and the joy was a holy joy. And in the midst of it all, he still asserted his authority. Mary, his mother, approaches him with, as we would fully expect from her, a reverence and a right respect towards this one that she had heard such wonderful things of before his birth. And she had treasured them in her heart, just as she had what she'd heard when, as a young man, he had gone to Jerusalem with them and for a few days uh, had been missing from them. But then, when she uh, was brought again to see him, rejoiced and treasured that up too. Mothers and fathers, treasure up the sweet moments with those children the Lord has entrusted to you. And pray that he will give you to see Christ born again in them. And that they will shine for him. Mary was respectful in her approach to Jesus. There's no sense here of equality. She, when she turns to the Lord, she says to him simply, they have no wine. She's making the need known, but she is not presuming or assuming any great authority in telling him what to do or how to do it, simply laying the problem bare before him. There's no undue sense of importance. You know, of course, the Roman Catholic Church deals with Mary in a way that's wrong. What they do is they elevate her to a position that she would have been horrified to have been placed in, would never have accepted when she was upon earth, and certainly would not accept it now. And the early church, when they were talking 
with regards to Mary, they used a term which was used not to elevate Mary, but to elevate Christ. It was the term Theotokos, the bearer of God. Now, of course, the Muslims often misunderstand that just as they misunderstand the Trinity and think that that means in some way that God is, uh, there was a point where the Son of God was born as God. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is the one who was born was God. He always was God. And that the one she bore in her womb and the one she carried was God. What it's doing is it's asserting the deity of Christ, even in his incarnation. It's an affirmation of the glory of the one she bore, not of the one who bore him. And here when she speaks in the way she does, she does not take anything untoward with regards to authority to say what she does. Though she is mildly and gently rebuked for even just bringing forward what she does because the Lord says to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, when he uses the word woman, I imagine if one or two of the young ones were to say that to their mummy, their mummy would tell them off, or their daddy, if he was in the room, would do it even faster. But he's not doing it with any sense of disrespect. Rather, he is showing her that he is one who is in authority and she is respected by him, but that she is under his authority. And he says, what? have I to do with thee? You remember he used the same term when he spoke to his mother from the cross. Woman, behold thy son. And then to his disciple, behold thy mother. So it's no sign of disrespect. It's simply his position of honor and authority being asserted as he mildly, gently, and kindly reminds her that the timing of miracles is not down to man, it's down to God. And he and his father, quite capable of knowing when that time is best. In fact, in the way that he speaks, he seems to be hinting that he knows he's going to do something with regards to that, he says, mine hour is not yet come. Then he reveals his power. It's wonderful that the Lord shows his power, not only in judgment, but in grace. Not only in times when we are caused to feel fearful and filled with angst and trepidation, but in those times when we rejoice in his presence and he joys in the praise of his people. So he reveals his power here at this time with this miracle, and it is so helpful to their need. They are in a real predicament. And what he does is by transforming water into wine, he 
gets them in a position where they are taken from their great need into a position of joyful abundance. You know, Jesus Christ transforms lives. I don't know everyone here. I know a good few of you, and you know me. Maybe there's some here, and you've never come to know that transforming power of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that the touch of Christ, the very word of Christ, can change a life. And here, in this first miracle, he transforms everything from fearfulness and from a dreadful, dangerous situation for that family that were responsible to those that they had gathered in into a position of honor and blessing and joy. And Jesus Christ changes lives for the better. And if you're here and you're a young person and you haven't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, yourself, or you know mummy and daddy do, or you know granny and granddad do, but you haven't done it, then call upon the Lord while you can. While you are young, call upon him for he changes lives with a most wonderful power to make us far more than we could ever be left to ourselves. Oh, the transforming power of Christ. But we see it here with regards to the way in which he transforms this water into wine. It's a lovely picture of the way in which the Lord one day will transform this world in which we are found at the moment. This world so filled with sin one day will be transformed. We're told that there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And oh, what a wonderful transformation that will be when there will be no sin, no sorrow, no sadness, nothing that offends shall be there. It will be transformed marvelously, gloriously. What a wonderful thing. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ asked with this water that was used for ritual cleansing. That's why they had these big pots of water. They had a religious significance. But you know, a lot of religious uh, practice and significance can be lost so that it becomes just that which is external. It takes a touch of Christ to take what outwardly is good and right and proper and make it something eternal and blessed. And that's what he did. And that transformation of the water used for purifying into wine used to rejoice the heart of man, Jesus Christ, showed his power to transform what outwardly is useful into something that is glorious and joyful. <coughs> and he does it in individuals. He does it in men and women, boys and girls. For if you are a new creature, you are every whit made new. All things are passed away. All things become new. And so here Christ transformed the water into wine. Now, 
The thing about it is in doing that, you could have left those pots of water there for a millennia. They never of themselves would have naturally transformed into wine. Whatever they'd have turned into, they never would have turned into wine. You see, it was just the power of Christ that did that. And lives left untouched by Christ, you can leave them for a thousand years. They'll never get any better except Christ come into the life. And your best efforts, your noblest endeavors can never change your heart. It takes the power of Christ. Only he can change a soul. And so he did that. He transformed the water into wine. He bestowed upon the wedding that which they needed most at that time. The wedding festivities could last up to a week. It would have been a source initially of huge embarrassment and potentially of a lawsuit for the family of the bride. They were responsible for ensuring that everyone had what they needed and they were accountable if they fell short. What was provided was wonderful. He not only provided what they needed for a moment or two, we're told, and by transferring it into sort of measurements that we understand, although there may be one or two ministers and others that you know about these things, these aren't the measurements we would normally use or know about. But when you transform them, it's around somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons. Or put that into metric, it's about 750 liters, up between 500 and 750 liters. In other words, it's about 1,000 bottles of what you would see on the shelf at Tesco or some other place. That's what he did with a word. He provided for them, not only for that moment, but much more to come. Oh, the Lord is gracious. He doesn't just deal with you in a niggardly fashion. He provides for you far more than you would ever have imagined. And does so freely, joyfully, and abundantly. By doing that, he did it in such a short time, it was clear it hadn't been anything other than the power of God. The man who was in charge of the feast didn't know where it came from. He didn't understand what had happened. But those servants, and so often it is the servants and those who are busy about their master's business that see things before those who are esteemed the higher and the more powerful and the more lofty. Often the awareness of the touch of Christ comes to those who are esteemed lower. The common people heard him gladly. My friend, what a blessing it is when Christ is seen to be working in your midst and you see it and you behold it and with wonder you acknowledge it. The goodness and the grace of God. Spiritual power. 
And they knew that. And it was observed in a very simple gathering. If it had been a rich man's wedding, there would have been no worry. They would have had plenty and they would have had more in reserves and they would have had somebody waiting to bring another cartload in if it was needed. It was a poor person. Christ knows us. He knows our needs and he provides for them abundantly and graciously. And he deals gently with those who are poor. And provides according to the riches of his grace and mercy. But he was honorable in everything that he did. Christ is our hope of glory and the glory of our hope, said one. And the glory of our Messiah was seen here in this first miracle. We saw the way in which Christ dealt so kindly with a family in such a difficult and trying situation. You see, at the end of that first chapter, as the Lord is starting to gather in his disciples and the way he's bringing them in and bringing them to a knowledge of himself, showing something of his glory, something of his goodness, something of his mercy. And they're recognizing and realizing this one is more than they had imagined. Nathaniel at first had said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. And when he sees him, Christ says, behold, an Israelite in whom indeed is no guile. He says, where do you know me from, Lord? He says, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Then Nathaniel responds in a most marvelous way. Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. He had come to see that here is the Messiah in his midst. He hadn't realized it. Oh, he'd spent his time in prayer. He had been seeking, looking for the day when God would show forth his Christ. And now he's standing before Christ himself. And oh, what a glorious Messiah he is. He turns lives around. He deals graciously and honorably with us in all our need. And blesses our joys. And those who trust in him know that there is none like unto Jesus. He is altogether lovely. And I want to ask you, my friend, do you know this Savior? Have you trusted in him? If you have, are you showing that joy which you should? Does your face proclaim the sweetness and the joy that Christ has brought to your life? It should and so should mine. Christ countenanced the season of festivity and joy there at the marriage in Cana of Galilee. And that fullness which it speaks of that he gave and that he provided shows us that we should be a joyful people and discourage any false asceticism that is the mark of Rome and all false religion. We should be gracious, godly, joyful people.
because Christ is in our lives, transforming them, changing them, making them what they should be. May we be such for his glory and the good of multitudes. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that day by day, we would be those whose lives are marked by that joy that only Jesus can bring. We know that the world can give joy for a moment, for a season. But that which comes from Jesus lasts and will never end. He is and gives to us that wellspring of eternal life which springs up and never ends. So may the Spirit of God dwell within us, enrich us, and enable us to show forth the joy of Christ. Bless us and be with us as a congregation. Remember all thy people, not only those present, but those who could not be. Follow them with thy blessing. Pardon our sins and receive our praise. For Jesus' sake. Amen.